So uh, Juan accosted me earlier. He said, are you still in the Psalms? And I said, what do you think? I am. I can't help it. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. Um, once you get into the Psalms, it's really, really, really hard to look up and to get away from them. So, if you would like, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 139. And I'll just read the text as I preach through it. Psalm 139. Again, it's not my fault. Uh, we've been, as you know, the last four weeks we looked at the God of Psalm 46. The I am always with you, God. We looked at uh, Psalm 100, the God of Psalm 100, the infinitely praiseworthy God. Psalm 29, the omnipotent genius creator God. And last week, Psalm 145, my favorite, I think, um, the unsearchably great God. I told you last week, awe is good, and you must be cultivating awe in your life. If you are a Christian, if you mean to be serious about it, you must be in awe of God. You must cultivate this. You must fight for it. And how do we do it? How do Christians fight to stay in, the, in, in awe of God? You're in the Word. You're in the Word. You're discussing the Word. You're meditating on the Word. You're under the preached Word. Listen, you won't stay in awe of God if you're just on the internet or watching television or listening to the media. You will not be in awe of God. You will not be. God says, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And you know what? Those of us who have searched for Him with all of our hearts, you know what we found, right? <laughs> He's awesome. He's awesome. Again, let me, let me define awe for you. It's a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder, Right? Some of the other words, it's veneration, it's dread, it's terror, it's fear, it's amazement, it's astonishment. If these things are not welling up in your heart as you contemplate who your Creator, Redeemer God is, then you're looking at the wrong one. You're not looking at Jesus Christ. You're not looking at the biblical Jesus. I shared a few quotes with you last week and I just want to Reemphasize them. Um, hopefully, for your benefit, Paul David Tripp, great book entitled Awe, A W E. Whether you know it or not, you're in a lifelong pursuit of awe. There's an awe longing in your heart, and if you misplace that awe, you will be perpetually dissatisfied. How many in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Are perpetually dissatisfied? You're not looking at God. I just mark it down. I already know that about you. If you're perpetually dissatisfied, you're not looking at your Creator. You're not looking at your Redeemer. You have an unresolved awe problem. Tripp goes on to say, every problem you think you have is ultimately about the lack of the awe of your Maker. I think he's 100% right about this. I'm not saying you don't have problems, but I'm saying if that's all you can think about, if that's the only thing on your mind, if you can't sleep at night, you're not looking at God. 
The God of unsearchable greatness that we talked about last week. Amen? The God of mighty acts. <laughs> As the psalmist said last week, if all of God is not the center of your worldview, you will look at nothing properly. Paul David Tripp again, American theologian and author. It's just the truth, beloved. It's why I'm still in the Psalms. I was sharing with Juan earlier. Um, what did I take from Psalm 139? You know the famous, the most famous verse in there. Actually, I took, I stole some of the words for uh, one of the chapters in my in my book. David says, "I am fearfully and what." Wonderfully made. Maybe the most famous passage in this psalm. But what I take away from it is how personal it all is. God is not interested in being an academic study of yours. In fact, you can't help but blaspheme God if it's only academic. You can't help but blaspheme God if this is all just theoretical to you. God means for it to be personal. If you've done even a superficial read of the Bible, you quickly understand God means for it to be personal. And if you read Psalm 139, and I don't know where I wrote it down, here it is, there are 49 first-person pronouns. When David's talking about himself, there are 30 second-person pronouns in reference to God. It's personal, beloved. It's personal to God. <laughs> you know, creation was a personal act of a personal God. I heard a theologian say the ultimate reality of this cosmos is a personal God. He doesn't mean to be academic in your life. He doesn't mean to be a religious icon in your life. He means for you to know Him. And He means for you to love Him. This is always what it means. In the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, this is always what it means to be a true believer. It's always what it means. Sin was and is a very personal act of rebellion against God. This is not theoretical. This is a personal act of rebellion against what my Creator has said to me. It's personal. It's extremely personal. Redemption is a personal act, a self-sacrificial act of the Son of God to redeem His people. It's personal. Yeah, He's bleeding out. How much more personal can it get? This is what I got from Psalm 139. It's all about me and God. And this is how God means for us to live our life. It's all about Him. It's all about how He's loved me. Repentance, faith, and obedience are highly personal acts of man in response to God. It's in His name. What, what did He say to Moses? What did He say? Tell my people I am who I am. Pronouns again. I am who I am. It's all personal, beloved. If it's not personal with you, you are not, you, you have not yet tasted biblical Christianity. If it is not personal with you. 
If you've met Jesus Christ, here's one thing I know for sure. It's personal. It's very personal. The personal God, He thinks, He chooses, He cares, He loves, He gives, He makes and keeps promises, He reveals, He has compassion, He's gracious, He's kind, He's merciful, He's loving, etc., etc., etc. You know what the Bible says, the two great truths of the New Testament. Jesus, what is the foremost commandment? What is the foremost? What sums up all the Old Testament commands? You know what it is. What is the foremost commandment? That you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, it's personal, right? It's personal. You know how Jesus prays in John 17, 3. I know I give you this verse all the time. This is eternal life that they may, what? Come to church. You should come to church. But what does Jesus say? This is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is as Jesus prays to the Father. When you boil it down, and I know a lot of denominations do a lot of goofy stuff and they'll tell you a lot of goofy things. But what I'm telling you is biblically, it's all personal, man. It's knowing and loving. And the knowing and loving always begets the obedience and the walking. You know, you can be a theoretical Christian, you can be a religious quote-unquote Christian, but you won't walk with Jesus very long because it won't take long you're going to get to the place where you're not going to go. It's going to cost too much. You're not going to go with Him if He goes there. But if you love Him and you know Him and it's personal, you'll follow Him to the ends of the earth. Born-again faith is about knowing and loving God. It's not about religious performance. It's not about good works. It's not about sacraments and ordinances and dogma and church membership. It's about loving I Am. It's about loving Yahweh. It's all personal. Between every human being and His Maker. And every human being will stand before God and give a personal account. And every human being will give that Account, it's all personal. I was, I, I was speculating with Karen earlier today. <laughs> I don't think there'll be a word at the judgment. God knows, and you know. God knows if you love Him, and you know if you love Him. And there's no defense if you don't love Him. There's no defense. There's no adequate defense for not loving your Creator who bled out. There is no defense. None. There'll be no objections. There'll be no appeals. Right? There'll be no arguments. It's just over. I think personal judgment will just be silence. He knows and you know. I just surmise that it could be this way. So David, again, David says, he uses 49 personal pronouns, right? This is 
personal. It's why I read Psalm 73 to you. Beside you, O God, is this true of you? Beside you, O God, I desire nothing on the earth. Nothing compares, right? Doesn't mean we don't have subordinate desires, but nothing compares to the desire I have for you. It is supreme. It is preeminent. These are the words of a true believer. So let me give you the outline. Psalm 139, okay? Verses 1 through 6, the omniscience of God, meaning all knowing. Verses 7 through 12, the omnipresence of God, meaning all present. Verses 13 to 18, the omnipotence of God, meaning almighty. And then verses 19 to 24, the righteousness of God in judging the wicked. Okay, let's start. Psalm. 139, I'm going to begin, obviously, in verse 1, a psalm of David. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. Okay, okay. as I get through these first few verses, I want you to think about this. Okay, I've been a pastor for a while, been in ministry for a long time. Do you know people think they can fool God? Do you know, that, do you know people think they can fool God with their religion? They think, they think they can hide their sin from God. They think God doesn't see that. God doesn't know about that. But what I want to say to you, the experience I've had as a pastor for a long time, people think they can play God for a chump. Like He doesn't know what's going on in your heart and mind. Like He doesn't know that you don't love Him. Just listen to the words of David here. Listen to what he's saying. Okay? Alright. Here I go again. I'm going to try to start again. Verse 1. Oh Lord, You have searched me and known me. It's all over right there, right? For the, the merely religious. It's all over right there. If you're merely religious, then you don't really love Him. It's all over. He knows it. <laughs> right? He continues. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from far away. He knows what you're thinking. <laughs> Listen, don't blaspheme Him by thinking you can fool Him. It is blasphemy of the highest order. Don't do it, beloved. He continues, You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimate. Let's look at this, verse 3. Intimately acquainted with all of my ways. He knows it all. He sees all the ugly, disgusting, reprehensible things in your life and in your mind. He sees it all. Don't think you can hide it from Him. Don't think it's a non-issue with Him. Your sin, as I said, it's a personal affront and rebellion against God. It's personal. If you think about sin this way, you will sin less. I promise. You will sin less. He goes on, even before there is, uh-oh, a word on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it all. Right? You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Search, pardon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is too high, I cannot attain unto it. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. God knows your heart and your mind even better than you do. You know, sometimes I think we can, we, we can almost fool ourselves, right? You can't fool God. You know, we can rationalize and think, well, I'm not so bad. Well, <laughs> well, what does God say about you? You need a sinner in the worst, pardon me, you need a Savior in the worst possible way. You are a sinner and you need a Savior just like me. C.S. Lewis says, hey, we're in a terrible fix. If God knows us like this, we're in a terrible fix. Right? This is a terrible mess we're in. If you're a thinking person, you understand. Your judge knows it all. He's not going to need to call witnesses. He knows it. There won't be any evidence. You're the evidence. You've not loved your Creator and your Redeemer with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've not done it. You're guilty. And if you don't have Jesus Christ, omnipotent wrath forever. See, Jim, I, I, I don't want to hear that. Well, God said it. Okay? God said it. These are not my words. These are the words of God. Lewis continues, Christianity is a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it doesn't start with comfort. It begins in dismay. For we have made ourselves the enemies of God. It's a terrifying fact. Amen? If you believe 139, 1-6, we've made ourselves the enemy of God. <laughs> Ezekiel 11.5, God says, I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. He says. So, omniscience and the unbeliever. Lewis is right. This is terrifying for the unbeliever. It is terrifying. It is enmity confirmed. God knows you do not love Him. And I want to say, uh, you know, most people won't own it. Most unbelievers won't own it. I don't hate God. Well, <laughs> it can't be interpreted any other way. If you're indifferent to the One who has given you everything and offered you everything for an eternity, and you are indifferent to this God, it can't be interpreted any other way. Lewis is right. This is a terrifying fact. You can hide it from your boss and you can hide it from your girlfriend and... You can hide it from your husband. You can hide it from your pastor. You can hide it from the police. But you cannot hide it from God. All the facts will come out on the last day. But what about omniscience and the believer? It's a beautiful thing, right? You know John 21, right? Jesus said, you love me, Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And what did Peter say? You know I do. Right? Praise God! You've, those of you who have been around for a while, you hear me say it a lot. Praise God! God knows I'm a Christian even when nobody else knows I'm a Christian. When I've, act, I've acted so horribly today, my wife doesn't even know I'm a Christian. But God knows I am. God knows I love Him. Even when I don't reveal that I love Him, 
I love his omniscience. Yeah, some days it's not so pleasant. But ultimately, I need him to be omniscient. I, I need him to know that I love him. And he does, beloved. He does know that you love him, if in fact you do. I love that text. So intimacy confirmed. Enmity confirmed or intimacy confirmed. The believer and the unbeliever and the biblical truth of God's omniscience. So, outward religious hypocrisy, outward religious performance, you're wasting your time and you're wasting God's time. In fact, you're storing up wrath. God hates pretense. He hates pretense. Just read the Old Testament. He hates pretense. So, verse 6, David said, these things are too high and too wonderful for me. So David's in personal worship of the personal God who personally knows Him. This is biblical faith. Second point in the outline, the omnipresence of God. Verses 7-12. through 12. Let me read that for you. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the, the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even... There your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will uh, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Right? <laughs> darkness is light to God. Uh, and the night is as bright as the day to God. You can't hide anything is what he's saying. Darkness and light are alike to you. You don't hide anything from God. In this verse 7 here, it's not that David wanted to escape from God. This is a rhetorical question. Where can I go and you not see me and know what I'm doing and thinking and feeling? There's nowhere to go. Your Maker sees it all. He sees it all. He sees it all. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I, not a God, uh, 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 am I not a God who is near, declares the Lord? I am not a God who is far off. Psalm 34, 7. The Lord encamps around those who fear Him. I'm pulling that off of verse 5 here. The Lord encamps around those. God said through His prophet Jeremiah 23-24, Do I not feel the heavens and earth? There's nowhere to go where God is not. It's His cosmos and He fills it up. He fills it up. Men can't say on the last day, I did not know, I did not see. Wrong. Read Romans chapter 1. You did know and you did see. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1? You have no excuse. No excuse. According to the Word of God. 
So he says, what is this about Sheol? He, he, this can mean three different things. The depths of the earth, the place of the dead, or even hell. So is God in hell? Well, by definition, He is. He's omnipresent. I'll just quote Charles Spurgeon. He says it better than anyone else I've ever seen. 19th century preacher in England. Of course, the presence of God produces differing effects in heaven and hell. But He is unquestionably in each. The bliss of one, the terror of the other. He is omnipresent. David says it. It's true. Even in the place of death, even in the place of judgment, God is there. Verses 9-12, to David says, whether I, I fly or I swim, God's hand leads and holds me. Isn't this a beautiful thing, right? God's hand leads me and holds me. And darkness is not darkness to God. It is light. It is light. Beloved, I'm stuck in the Psalms. I hope to get out of them soon, but I'm not going to rush it. Because I'm sitting behind my little desk in my little apartment in my little village in Italy. And I'm worshiping down to my toenails. And here's the thing. This, this God of unsearchable greatness, He wants me. He loves me. Now, if this doesn't take your breath away, you don't understand what's being said. It's an amazing thing. We can live huge and die well because our God is like this. I, it's, it's, one of my, it's one of the things I love to say, live huge, die well. My father died well. I watched him die. He died well. He was a deacon in the church. He lived it all his life. He walked it in front of me. I wouldn't receive it until I was 28. But I watched my father die well. I watched him live well and die well. Only Christians can do this. In the ultimate sense. Only Christians can do this. So David is all, he's full of worship, he's emboldened, and he's filled with anticipation about what it means to belong to God. What it will not only mean tomorrow, but what it means for a billion eternities. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I love to ask this question. How many people did Nebuchadnezzar throw in the furnace? How many people are in the furnace? Anybody? He threw in three, but there's four. What? what, what? There's four in there. What happened? <laughs> Who's with? Jesus is in there. <laughs> you say, Jim, you preach a sovereign God, but my life's a mess. Oh, guess what? Jesus is right there with you. If you know Him, you love Him, you're, you're in relationship with Him. It doesn't matter if your life's a mess or not. You know, my life, it's points in my life has been an utter mess. I'm surprised someone didn't write a country song about it. Right? For you non-Americans, that might not translate. It would have been a hit song. 
I was so pathetic. But you know what God did? God did an amazing thing. He changed me and He grew me and He brought me up out. So don't you ever lose faith in what God is doing personally in your life. Verses 13 to 18. The omnipotence of God in creation. For you formed my inward parts. You weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was hit, not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Listen to this. Just listen to this. And not be stunned when you leave here. Okay? How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And pornography is more interesting to you? Are you kidding me? Adultery is more interesting to you? Fashion's more interesting to you? Career's more interesting to you? Money's more interesting to you than that? A God whose thoughts towards his people outnumber the sand? You go to the beach and just start counting. Just start counting. Go to the beach and start counting. These are the number of thoughts God has toward you. And oh, how long has God been thinking about you? How long has God been God? A long time. A really, really, really long time. (laughs) A billion eternities passed. This, This is so utterly beautiful to me. This God of unsearchable greatness thinks of me. He thinks of me. And his thoughts of me outnumber the sand. If you don't find the biblical God interesting, you are brain dead. I say that in love. (laughs) As lovingly as I can say it, you have to be brain dead or heart dead. Not to be moved by what the Lord is saying to us here. And of course, I don't think I need to say this. We've preached on abortion a few times, but you know, you know, here's the thing. The womb is the the artisan shop of God. He builds human beings in there. And what are human beings? You're an image bearer. I was listening to Piper preach a couple of weeks ago and he's talking about, oh, there's there's 7.6 billion image bearers on the planet. Now, what's the purpose of an image? To bear forth, you know, a replica of, of, uh, of, of that which it's an image of. I'll get it out in a minute. When you see 7.6 billion human beings on the planet, what's the testimony? It's about God. I told you a couple of weeks ago. The cosmos and its infinite expanse, 2 trillion galaxies, is about God. Oh, guess what? 7.6 image bearers are supposed to, are supposed to point you to God. 
You know, human beings are amazing. If you get into the science, you, it's just like, you know, it'll blow your mind. Just the biological miracle that you are. And then you realize we have this spiritual and soulish aspect. It's unbelievable. As C.S. Lewis says, everybody's a miracle. You know, so you be careful how you treat your fellow man. He's made in the image of God and he is a miracle. So what's the highest argument against abortion? Of course, thou shalt not murder should be enough, but if it's not, that's the image of God in there. That's God's workshop. Don't you lay your hands on that. It's why Satan attacks it. It's the image of God. And if you've been a victim of abortion, know too that God forgives. God forgives. But let's be biblical. Let's be biblical. David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. As I said in chapter 5 of my book, I, we are fearfully and wonderfully coded. <laughs> we, we, you know, the software that runs us is astonishing. Um, yeah, I don't have time to go into it. I've got, a, I've got three or four different illustrations here about the, the, the marvels of the human body. If you, if you want them, I'll send them to you. I don't have time to go into them now. I, I was looking at eyesight had a big description about that, but let me just say this. Um, biomedical engineer John Stevens says 100 years of supercomputer, um, would, it would take 100 years of supercomputer time to simulate what takes place in your eye many times a second. You've heard me talk about, yeah, the DNA thing. The coded algorithms in the cell, every one of your cells except your red blood cells. Francis Collins says it would take a thousand books, one thousand pages long to record the information in one cell of your body. If the DNA in your body was unwound and joined together end to end, it would stretch from the earth to the sun and back four hundred times. I say it in the book, but molecular biology has destroyed the last hope of the Darwinian hypothesis. It's just over. We kind of already knew that, but it's just over. And I love what David says in verse 14. What does he say? What does he say in verse 14? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and what? I know it! I know it very well. Right? I know this. It's a point of worship for Him. I know this. I'm not careless with my body. I don't put stupid stuff in my body. You know the text. Let me read it to you from the message. Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place? The place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please squandering what God paid such a high price for? God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and 
through your body. David says, I know I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a, it's a cause of worship and thanksgiving. And then secondarily, it's stewardship for you. What are you going to say to God when He says, what did you do with that amazing brain and beautiful body I gave to you? What are you going to say to Him? I surf the internet a lot. What are you going to say to Him? Beloved, it's a stewardship. Your body and your mind, it's a stewardship before God. It's a gift from God. He expects you to do business with it. Just go read, just go read, yeah, the parables of the talents and the minas. Okay. Let's move on. And i got to talk about this. Verse 16, our days... I talk about this a lot. I mention it a lot. Our days are ordained for us before there was one of them. You know what this is, beloved? This is absolute total freedom. You can be fearless. You're not going to die one second sooner or live one second longer than God has already ordained. So just be fearless with it. I'm not saying be careless. I'm saying be fearless with your life in the cause of Christ. <laughs> Nothing's going to come to you that God has not ordained. You can take all the vitamins you want. Hey, if you like vitamins, take the vitamins. You know? Take lots of vitamins. You know, do it. You know, I like to exercise. Oh, I exercise. But I'm not under any illusion that I'm extending my life. I will be gone on the day that God has ordained it. It cannot be changed. And there's a lot of freedom in this, beloved. I'm just telling you, there's a ton of freedom here. <laughs> a lot of freedom. It just depends on whether you believe God is who He says He is or not. So God's thoughts toward us are personal. And they are infinite. He has given infinite consideration and reflection to you and the circumstance you are in right now. You say, Jim, it doesn't seem like God's like really in my life and like there's so much confusion and like I don't. Okay, he's known about your problem since eternity past. This is not a surprise to him. He's not only known about it, he's orchestrated it. If you belong to him, he means to use it to bring you into conformity with Jesus. Let's finish up here, verse 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. And I do not hate those, pardon me, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. The righteousness of God. The last point in the outline, the righteousness of God in the judgment of the wicked. Those of you who are biblically literate, you know there are ten imprecatory psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms. This is where the psalmist calls down the wrath of God on his enemies. Okay? David wrote eight of them, and two are written by others. How do we understand this in relation to what Jesus says about loving our enemies? First, David is writing the Word of God. You're not. Okay? <laughs> David is writing... The, these are the sentiments of God. 
God will judge His enemies. So David and the other two Psalms were written by men who are uniquely positioned to write the Word of God. You're not in that position. So I hope you understand that. You're not in that position. You, you are not the prophetic mouthpiece of God as David and the other psalmists were. So, in the imprecatory psalms, the writers are affirming the sure judgment of God upon His enemies. So we are not like the psalmist in this regard. And so, we can love our enemies as we are commanded to and there's no contradiction here. You don't judge anybody. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is His. Okay? So if you have any confusion about that, let me know. Romans 12, 19-21 Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The New Testament Christian, we're not writing Scripture. We're loving our enemies. But we affirm the Old Testament. God's enemies will be judged. Omnipotent wrath will land on them. So, just want to make sure we, if you get, listen, if you have any questions about that, just get with me and I'll try to sort it out. Let's finish up. Verse 23 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. So, we see how personal and intimate it is with David. There is unencumbered transparency, right? What does he say? Search me, O God. When was the last time you prayed that? Search me, O God, and know me. It's, it's uh, yeah, unhindered transparency between you and the Lord. David says, know me. Know me. So in Psalm 139, David is teaching us what genuine, true, biblical, saving, born-again Christianity looks like. It's a very personal love affair. And if it's anything less in your life, then I lovingly exhort you to go home and ex- examine your heart before God and the Word of God. Nothing else really matters. If you don't get this right, nothing else matters. So we were built and wired for the beauty, intimacy, and adventure of knowing and walking with God. As one theologian said, to have a relationship of epic and heroic intimacy. That's a challenge, right? (laughs) Epic and heroic intimacy. It's what God desires with His people. So yeah, He's our groom. He's come for us. He's bled out for us. He loves us. So I I don't want anybody to walk out the door 
I don't want any thinking person walking out the door and thinking that Christianity is anything less than a radically personal relationship with God. If you think Christianity is anything less than that, you have been deceived. So, no more religious games. You're not fooling anybody but yourself. God knows. God knows. We, we're going to sing this song. We're going to close with a part of this song called You Say. We sang it last week. I love this song. I told you last week, there's a beautiful truth here, but there's a greater truth. You know, uh, Lauren Daigle sings, um, I believe what you say about me. The key is, the only reason that is of any value at all is if you believe what God says about God. What she's singing is meaningless if you don't believe what God says about God. She says, I'm loved. I'm held. What else does she say? I'm something else. Strong. I'm, I'm yours. She says all of this. It's worthless if you don't believe what God says about God. Because if God's not great, if God's not this great God, none of that matters. He can't hold her. And if He loves her, it doesn't matter. He's pathetic. He's a wannabe God. All I'm saying to you is, beloved, when you sing this song, when you sing this song, <laughs> you think about what you believe about Him. And what you believe about Him makes this meaningful. It makes it life-changing. So let's stand and sing together.